0: Please be seated. I want to welcome you to Woven Covenant Church. We decided to start our service at 1.14 p.m., and uh, I'm still getting used to it, but you know what? I think I'm liking it. As our worship team has more space on the front end to prepare, I can tell that they are more relaxed, and as they are more relaxed and able to lead us into worship, um, you know, um, we we're learning to worship under any circumstance, under any kind of strain or stress. But at the same time, there's something about an environment where we can come freely and worship together. And uh, I think that extra 14 minutes is good for us. And as we kind of allow our service to draw out just a little bit more, I think we're gradually finding we're finding our rhythm and our flow here. So, now having said that, remember it's 1:14, not 1:15. Not one twenty. <laughs> services at one fourteen. At one o'clock, I was looking around. I was wondering where everybody was, and then I realized, oh yeah, our service is one fourteen. So people are taking fourteen extra minutes to get here. So, <clears throat> Easter Sunday was two Sundays ago, and um, these three weeks we've been talking about the resurrection. The first Sunday we've talked about resurrection, the resurrection of the body, Jesus' resurrection. Last Sunday I gave an apologetic, and irrational case for resurrection. Today I want to take um, an existential approach to resurrection. I want to talk about resurrection in a way that uh, will talk about us, our human experiences. Resurrection is not something that we can just understand up here, ideally. It's something that must connect with here. If the resurrection is just something that we know conceptually but we don't feel, then it's a dead resurrection. It's not real. And for us to talk about the resurrection of Jesus is a powerful thing. It's a powerful event. It's not just a powerful concept. It's a powerful reality. How then shall we live in light of the resurrection is the question. How will you live? And so what I'm going to do today is take this existential approach to the resurrection, talk about what it means that Jesus resurrected and how it affects us, what it does to us. And what I'm going to do is talk through John chapter 21, the 21st chapter of John. And as I make my way, I'm going to call out four questions, four discipleship questions about your relationship with Jesus, about your experience with God, that you're not just understanding resurrection conceptually, but that it is affecting your insides in a profound and very real way. Now, I deliberately use the word existential because what that implies is that you are a human subject. You cannot just know this. uh, You you cannot just know this as an objective idea. It's It's subjective. It's subjective. It's subjective. It's going to It's going to provoke, and so these four discipleship questions, I hope, will grapple with your existence, will grapple with your identity, and I think that's what John 21 does, and so John chapter 21, verse 1, this is my key, this is my cue that unlocks this passage and opens it up for me. It says, after all of these things, what are these things in John 21? After the death of Jesus and after these rumors of his resurrection, after all of these things, Jesus manifested himself alive to the disciples, and it says he did it in this way. So deliberately, I think those words, those three words, in this way, um, it, it suggests something important is going to happen Something special is going to happen in this chapter. In this way, in this particular way, Jesus was revealed. And in verse 2, it says, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, sons of Zebedee, two others of his disciples. So the disciples are gathered together, and uh, they're, they're dejected. Now, the, the, the tenor, the tone of this passage is one of a failure. It's one of hunched shoulders and dejection. Their revolutionary Jesus Their revolutionary leader, Jesus, whom they thought they were going to sit at his right and his left, they were going to be princes and lords and governors, and they were going to rule together with him, is dead. And all of their hopes, they invested all of their lives, possibly even their uh, savings accounts, and they invested all of it into this Jesus in the last three years, only to see it all come crashing down. But now there's this strange talk, crazy talk. Some of the women talking about him being resurrected. I'm not being derogatory in there in any sense. Last Sunday I talked about how the testimony of women were not admissible in a court at that time in that society. And so for Peter and for the disciples to hear that these women were talking about he's, he's resurrected, there's, this, there's a little bit of this unbelief. Can it be true? At the same time, it, it just sounds like crazy talk. And so what do they do when they realize that they, they, they no longer have a career? They no longer have a job as a disciple or as a, a lord of this kingdom of God. They realize that everything that they put, they invest their lives in, everything that they put into the basket the last three years comes crashing down. And what Peter says in one simple statement, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. Now this is not this is not the ultimate this is not the ultimate, you know, leisure statement of a man that says, Well, I'm going fishing. This is more of a this is more of a dejected cry. This is more of a dejected statement. I I don't know what else to do with my life. I used to be a fisherman, so let me just go back to my old job. So he goes back to his old job. He goes back to his old thing. Well, at least there's one thing I know how to do. I know how to set set up the nets. I know how to prepare the boat. I know how to do this. So just, it's almost like mechanics. You got to live. And so just out of mechanics, just doing the next thing, and they go back to their old job, and you know what? They find out they can't even do that anymore. It says in verse 3 that they went out, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. What a picture of utter dejection. Your new job, you failed at it. Your old job, you, even, you can't even do that anymore. You forgot how to do it. What do you do with your life? I don't know if any of you feel or relate to that experience where it's just you feel like you don't know what else to do with your life and you're fishing at life. You're just fishing at life. Well, maybe if I just toss this out over here and maybe I'll get something. Maybe if I'll do this, maybe this is a jump start. But you're just fishing, And really underneath it all you know that life is not really coming together for you. It's under these circumstances that something powerful and something very personal happens. Something very personal happens. In verse four, day was breaking, the sun is rising, and Jesus is standing on the beach, alive, resurrected. And as he stands on the beach, they don't recognize him, and he says to them, he says to, the, he says to these guys, seasoned fishermen, right? He says, children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered no. Although if I read between the lines, I think it was more like they answered him, no. They answered him, no. Like, who is this guy? Who is this landlubber? Who is this, who is this person from the shore that, 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 that can presume to tell us to how to do our job, let alone call us children. And so you can almost hear kind of this, this irritation and resentment behind that word, no. Well, you haven't caught any fish, have you? Well, who are you to question me? This is what I've done. It's a question. You haven't caught any fish. When you look at the way it's phrased, even in the original Greek, it's, it's, it's phrased in a way, it's almost, it's, it's almost intoning to say, you, you, haven't, you haven't caught any fish, have you? That's what I thought. You really aren't able to do this. You don't know what you're doing, do you? And there's nothing more irritating. Nothing more irritating than a question like that. Imagine for those of you that are teachers, for example, and somebody were to provoke you and say, do you know what you're doing in front of the st- Do you know how to work with students? And you're like, I, I know how to do my job. Or imagine somebody c- confronts you as a mom, Right? and says that's not how you that's not how you burp your baby and you're like you're just about to you're you're just about to transform these hands into fists and you're about to go all ballistic or somebody says to you you're a your, your kid you're student and somebody tells you that's not how you do that's not how you that's not how you um, relate to your friends in school or that's not how you do this the right way and you're like i know what i'm doing you know, this question Jesus asks, you don't have any fish, do you, is deliberately provoking. It's deliberately provoking the ego. The ego that says, I can do things. I can do things in my life. I have a life. I have, I have abilities. I can do things. And what Jesus does with that simple question is strike right at the heart of our ability to do. Our identity that is formed on top of all of that doing it strikes at the essence of your being. I mean, I've, I've, I've honed my craft. This is what I do. But he says, you haven't caught any fish. That's a hard question to hear, isn't it? Do you know who I am? You're going to tell me that I haven't caught any fish. Do you know? You don't have any fish. You know, I think Jesus' intent in asking this question is not to belittle It's not to judge or criticize them. I think it's designed to poke at that very thing that you are clutching at so tightly. The thing that you clutch at and you say, This is who I am. And so that's the first discipleship question, friends. The first discipleship question is You do not have any fish, do you? Why does he ask that question? To make you feel bad? To call you a failure? No. No, sometimes we have bad father or mother issues. We import critical parenting into our own self-perception. Jesus is not critical parenting here. What he's doing is he's getting at the heart of our ego, getting at the heart of our identity, getting at the heart of the things that we clutch at. And then he says something in verse 6. Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. Oh, that sounds like a great idea. You obviously know what you're talking about. Cast the net on the other side. Sure, Mr. Stranger who doesn't know anything about fishing and you're trying to tell me how to do my job from the seashore. It's like being the, the consummate backseat driver. Well, maybe you should try this. Or maybe you should do this. Go this way, go that way. Cast on the right side. And then the miracle happens. And this miracle, this is something that I think drives at the heart of the personal encounter of God with you. What happens is, as they cast on the other side, they were not able to haul the net in because there was this huge catch of fish. There's this huge catch of fish. Now, there's something about this miracle, and the miracle simply is they did what the strange person said, they cast it on the right side, why they even obeyed him or why they even did what he suggested. For whatever reason, they did it, but they caught this huge catch of fish. That miracle, there's something about that miracle if you've ever read the Gospels before, does there something, something familiar about that miracle? Does anybody know? Something familiar, familiar about this fish miracle? There is something familiar about it. It harkens back to Luke chapter 5, when Peter first met Jesus, the first time their eyes ever locked, the first time... Uh, Jesus called Peter into this journey called discipleship. In Luke 5, 1, we can see the story about the crowd pressing around. And so Jesus, being crowded on shore, he stepped back and he stepped into the boat. The boat happened to be Peter's. And as he's in the boat, he says, let's go out. Let's put out to the deep water and put your nets into the water for a catch. And Peter says, Lord, we worked all night. We caught nothing, but I'll do as you say. I mean, obviously, this guy doesn't know anything about fishing. But instead, what happens is they have this huge catch of fish, and the nets are breaking. So many fish. And that's when Peter falls at Jesus' feet and says, go away, I'm a sinful man, go away. That's what happened at the beginning of the story. So this whole fish miracle, it's not the first time. You see, let me explain what Jesus is doing here. Let me explain to you what Jesus is doing. And I'm going to use an analogy. For those of you that are young adults, maybe you might like the story, I know that... um, uh, it, it might strike a romantic key in some of you. Let's say that uh, you're a young adult here at Kingdom City, here at Woven, and you, you, you go on, that, on this beach retreat thing that actually they all drove off. So you go on a beach retreat with all these young adults and you're all just having a good time. You roasted marshmallows and you played games. You did all these things at the campfire overnight and then the sun is rising. And as the sun is rising, all of a sudden... I'm going to speak from the guy's perspective. All of a sudden, you see her. And you know what it's like when you've been at the beach all day. You kind of, you, you've got a little bit of, you know, you, you've got a little bit of a tan. You, your hair is all kind of, you know, must. And, and, and you just, everybody looks good at the beach after a couple of hours. And you see her, and you see her like you've never seen her before. And you realize, holy cow, wow. And then you reach down for the same shell, and your hands accidentally touch. And then you're laughing, and you kind of strike up small talk. And then small talk becomes deeper talk, and you realize that you both like shells or something like that. And then this whole conversation draws out, and it becomes this dialogue that eventually you, become, you start dating, and you go steady. And as you go steady, you, you, confess you, know, you, you confess you really, I really, really like you. You're not ready. You're not ready yet but you're, you, you're convinced that, that I think this is the one, I think this girl's the one. But something happens. After three years, you know each other well enough to have your real fight, your first real fight. And as you have your first real fight, I mean, it was like, the, this is not gonna work out, you know? And she basically, she slams the door on you, and she walks away, and you walk away storming off, and you're like, well, I'll, you know, I'll show her. But then you think about it, and you're like, I think I made a mistake, I realize that I want this person in my life. How are you going to win her back, guys? What are you going to do? What are the things that you might do that would strike a chord, that would really move her, that would capture her? What will you do to bring her back for good? Because this time you're ready to say, the four-letter word, love. This time you have, you know, you're ready to propose and you have this little box, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the Zales, whatever, right? You have, the, you have the Jared. You went shopping at Jared. You have the box, right? How are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? What if, let me just give you a suggestion here. What if you took her back to the very same spot where your eyes met as the sun was rising at the very same beach, and you put the ring inside that shell that you both of you reached for, and you said, "Look, a shell," and you opened it up, and miraculously inside there's a diamond ring. And what is she going to say? I mean, I mean, come on, guys, isn't that pretty good? You know, your pastor is thinking about the, the, good ideas. This is good stuff. This is the way you're going to win her back for good, right? Now, do you see the correlation that I'm trying to make here between these miracles and what Jesus is doing with Peter? Yes? What is Jesus doing with Peter? Is he just saying, well, hey, man, I think you're okay. You're, you're fine in my book. You can just, all right, fine, you can be on my team again. Is that what he does? Jesus meets Peter in an intensely personal way, in a way that he knows this time I'm not going to lose him. This time I'm going to take him back. I'm going to bring him back to the same beach. It might not be the same beach exactly, but it is a beach. And with the same exact miracle that struck him to the core and said, I'm a sinful man. I don't have any fish. I'm not able to catch fish. Constantly, whenever we see Peter in the Gospels fishing, he never, he never catches anything. Only with the injection of Jesus into the narrative is he able to produce, is he able to succeed in life. And it's with the same exact miracle that Jesus brings Peter back to the same place as the sun is rising. I mean, come on, that's romantic. That's romantic. And what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? He asks Peter Three questions. Three questions. And those questions, this is the second discipleship question, is quite simply Peter. Because at this point, Peter recognizes. He knows this is Jesus. And Jesus is Peter. Why did you abandon me? Is that what he says? No. See, this is great psychology here. This is great motivational interviewing is what it's called. He asks him, do you love me? And Peter's like, well, yeah, duh. And then he asks him a second time, and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, yeah, you asked me that already. And then he asks him a third time, he says, do you love me? And then Peter's like, okay, I know what he's doing. I know what he's doing. You see, there's more backstory to this. Because the last time Peter looked Jesus in the eye was where? It was in the courtyard just before Jesus was crucified, when he was abandoned by everybody, even Peter. Even Peter abandoned Jesus. And it says that, Luke 22, it says that right at that moment when Peter said three times, I don't know him. You know, the first time, they're like, you, you know Jesus. You, weren't you with Jesus? No, I don't know him. The second time, you are surely with Jesus. No, I don't know him. And the third time, you were with Jesus. He says, get away from me. I don't know the man. And right at that moment, the rooster crows, and peter sees jesus look across at the courtyard and jesus says i know you know with his eyes he's saying i know exactly what you just did i know exactly what you just did and it says peter ran away and wept bitterly he wept bitterly so for jesus to ask him three times do you love me that's not because jesus is kind of like you know he i just need extra assurance no jesus is doing something here friends What I'm trying to convey is that when he relates with you, when God relates with you, when Jesus relates with you, he is going to ask the questions, not give you the answers, but in a personal, existential way, he's going to ask the questions that pierce at the heart of your being. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times for each of the times that Peter denied Jesus. Friends, this is the question. This is the second discipleship question. He asks you, Do you love me? Not as a criticism. Once again, this is not critical parenting. He's not saying, If you really loved me, you wouldn't fail. That's not what he's saying. What he's doing is he's calling Peter back to the first love Do you love me? the foundation of all of your life should be this one question. Do you love Him? Do you love Him? And I'm not trying to come with this performance standard that you should be loving Him this much what I'm saying is to love Jesus is what grounds us. It becomes the foundation underneath your feet. It becomes the firm ground. Apart from that first love, there is nothing. There is nothing. Do you love me? There's a difference between a first love and a second love. The second love, this is love for love in return, it's love out of need, it's, neuro- it's neurosis at its worst. It's it's a lesser love, it's pop love, it's infatuation. I love pizza, I love the way you make me feel, I love the way you look. First love is not selfish love. Love, First love is love of the highest rank, of the highest order. It's when we uh, identify ourselves in the love of God, in the love of God even for us. We identify ourselves, that is home. You know, friends, that first love Must be cultivated. It has to be cultivated. Why do you pray? Let me ask you this. Why do you seek God? Why do you do devotions? So that you can check off the box at the end of the day, I did my devotions for today. Friends, the reason why we do devotions is so that we can cultivate our first love, so that we can get back to the place, back to the beach. Back to the seashore, where we can remember, where we can identify, re-identify, find ourselves in the love of God. Yes, it's subjective, where we can feel it again. Well, pastor, that sounds like you're pursuing emotions. Yes, I am. Who wants to come to church and just learn a, a theological lesson? You want your heart to be inflamed for God. You want to be in a place where you can feel peace and serenity once again. That is found in cultivating the first love. That is found in devotion and in prayer. When we when we're on our knees and we seek God, not for something in return, we're not seeking that. Second love, God, I pray for it. Well, I pray that my son will and my daughter and that my kids will grow up. And I pray that you know we'll have food on the table. And I pray that this will work out. I pray for my job. I pray for that's not all of that stuff is second love. First love is plain and simple adoration. It's why we sing every Sunday morning before you hear a talk. Because adoration for God is culti- it, it must be cultivated. Do you love me is the second discipleship question that Jesus asks. And Peter answers, Well, yes, I love you, I love you. You know, three times I love you. And after Peter answers a third time, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus did something very interesting. In verse 18, it says, Truly I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself, go wherever you wished. When you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands, and somebody else will dress you, and somebody will take you where you don't want to go. And this is a striking statement. Having witnessed um, my father-in-law's slow decline in the last few years, and uh, ultimately his passing a couple of weeks ago. This whole experience of somebody else dressing you, somebody else stretching you out, taking care of you, somebody else taking you where you don't want to go. I mean, all of life, all of life we spend making our own decisions, Childhood and youth is about growing to maturity where we can make my own decisions, but then we get to a place where somebody else makes a decision for us, how difficult that must be. That the ultimate experience of, of, of death really is about stretching our arms out. I mean, even before physical death, we surrender to other people. We surrender to God. We surrender ourselves. You know, surrender is not a bad thing. Surrender is not necessarily a bad thing. Stretching your arms out and letting someone else dress you. In verse 19, Jesus says this, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And as legend goes, as legend goes, finally they captured Peter. And this time he did not deny Jesus. He did not deny him three times. They said, did you know him? He said, yes. Do you testify to him? Yes. Will you change your mind? No. And they said, okay. They took him in, and as the legend goes, they said, you're going to be crucified, Peter. And he says, no, don't crucify me. I'm not worthy to die the same way as my Lord died. They said, fair enough. And so what they did was they crucified him on an inverted cross. That Jesus, Peter died on a cross, his arms literally stretched out, but instead of upright, upside down. That's the, that's the historical tradition. You know what's remarkable about all of this is that what Peter did in the end, not only cultivating his love for Jesus three times, yes, three times cultivating his love for Jesus, what he did in the end was he followed. And friends, this is where your discipleship is going to be put into action. And Jesus, I just want the love, I just want the love. Okay, provoke me every now and then. Ask me if I've caught any fish. Fine, I'll take that. But don't tell me to follow you. Discipleship, that's hard. Discipleship calls us to do things that that are challenging, radical. Will you follow me is the last thing. Follow me is what Jesus says. It's remarkable that he says, follow me at the end of the story. Those are not ending words. Those are beginning words. Those are words you say at the beginning of a story. But here what Jesus does is he reinstates Peter. Yes, he's giving him a second chance. He's saying, follow me, follow me. And that's the third discipleship question. Will you follow me? Will you follow me? Sure, I'll follow. If you've really read the Gospels, you know that's going to be a hard question to answer. I remember when I was in my early 20s, and I first really heard these words spoken in my soul, will you follow me? And for me, that meant leaving home and moving 3,000 miles away to the West Coast. It was not an easy decision. I fought it tooth and nail. Will you follow me and do the hard thing even if I ask? I don't know, Lord. I don't know if I'm willing. I don't know if I'm willing today. Are you willing to be made willing? I'll just start with that. Three discipleship questions, but then we wrap up with the fourth one. So Jesus says to Peter, follow me. This is your second chance. I'm not going to ask you again after this. And we know, according to history, legend, tradition, Peter followed all the way to the end. But there are hiccups along the way. And you want to hear about the hiccup? You can see it in verse 20. Peter turns around and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following. Uh, it's believed that this is John, John who actually wrote this gospel. And uh, in verse 21, Peter sees John and he says, to Jesus, well, what about him? What about him? And, and Jesus almost kind of snaps at Peter and he says, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. What is that to you? You follow me. That's the fourth and last discipleship question. What is that to you? It is this last question that can either completely—it um, can completely discount the first three questions. You see, if we are constantly casting sidelong glances. And we're looking at other people, and it's interesting. It says, in, it says that Peter saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, following. Listen carefully to this. Jesus just asked Peter, follow me. And Peter looks at John and the way John is following Jesus. And he says, well, how come I can't follow you the way he's following you? I want to follow the way he follows. You cannot follow. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus the way somebody else is a disciple, This is something that you can only walk in your own shoes. You cannot wear somebody else's shoes and follow Jesus or follow that path. You cannot be a Christian the the same way somebody else is. Same way somebody else is not going to sin the same way that you're going to sin. Following Jesus means you can only do it in the way that you know. And in the way that you know, you cannot cast sidelong glances and say, well, I want to be like that guy, or I want to be like her. Why can't I follow you the way she follows? She's so pretty and so successful, or why can't I follow like him? He's like the CEO, or he's this great man, or whatever. Why can't I follow like them? And Jesus' question is, what does that matter to you? Why are you looking at him? The number one thing, in fact, it's bad enough to be in the Ten Commandments, is covetousness wishing that we had somebody else's life, wishing that we could be somebody else, wishing that we could be a disciple. Like, what is that to you? You must have the existential encounter with me on your own. There is no Christianity otherwise, only nominal church going, friends. Here at Woven, we're really pushing hard on this. Our vision is going to be rolled out next next Sunday. And part of that, we're really going to want to drive towards discipleship. Not just a one-hour, two-hour check-in on Sunday morning, but what does Christian life look like throughout the week? We're really going to push at that. Because discipleship, you must find the way your shoes, your discipleship shoes fit for you. And you must Learn to walk in your shoes and not follow Jesus somebody else's way. Because if that's the case, then you will completely sabotage the first three questions. The first three discipleship questions. You don't have any fish, do you? Well, Bob over here has all these fish and he likes to fish this way. That's not what I asked you. You, your experience of life, your successes and your failures, that's what I'm asking. The second discipleship question is, do you love me? Well, the way they love you is they love extravagantly, they love like this. No, 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 no. How do you love me? And then the third disciple should question Will you follow me? Well, I want to follow the way John follows. <laughs> Peter saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. I want to follow. No, no, no. How are you following? Will you follow me? It is very important, friends, that you hear from God yourself. I believe that God speaks. I believe that we can hear His voice in different ways. He spoke to me as a young man even before that. But when He speaks to you, He will ask you with those discipleship questions. Don't get sidetracked. Don't look at what the Joneses have. Don't look at the grass on the other side because that fourth discipleship question focuses your attention back on your first love, back on your first love, back on your first love. Forget about that. Forget about that other church. Forget about their house. Forget about their life. Forget about their ministry. Forget about what they're doing. Forget about that. What is that to you? I am dealing with you. Come back to the first love. Come back to the first love. Cultivate the first love. Friends, I invite you to close your eyes. At this time, and I want to call you to the first love. At Woven, we can teach, we can provide feeding, but in the end, you must cultivate your first love. I cannot do that for you. I cannot cultivate first love for you. And so as the band ministers in the background, I want to call you at this time to talk Really talk, really talk. However you feel comfortable, talk to Jesus. If you need a guide, use those questions. Have you caught any fish lately? Do you love me? Will you follow? What is that to you? If it helps, use those discipleship questions. But talk. Cultivate your first love. Without the first love, everything in life is just second love. It's mercenary love. It's all doing for receiving in return. It's just a trade-off. There's nothing pure about it. It's all doing so that I can look better. It's love so that I can get something in return. Love for love in return. And I need to feel needed. No. All of those loves are just secondary. Cultivate at this time your first love. So talk to him, please. Use this chance, please, to talk to Jesus. Use this opportunity, please, to cultivate your first love. As, this, as the band plays this song, I want you to hear the words. I want you to talk to Jesus at this time. That's my invitation.